bringing people together and making sure that people understand that they're a team, that they're part of a team. Like I, I, I kind of, I don't, I, I don't ever use the word the staff or anything like that. It's always the team, and that, that's exactly what it is. I'm, I may be general manager, but I'm just one of, I'm part of that team. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Calling all thrill makers, fun creators, and attraction bros. Get ready for the ride of a lifetime at IAPA Expo 2023, the global attractions industry's premier event. Join us in Orlando, November 13th to the 17th for a week of learning, networking, and exploring trends and new technologies. Discover innovative solutions for growth that will supercharge your business and enhance your career. Register by November 10th at iapa.org slash iapaexpo. That's I-A-A-P-A dot org slash I-A-A-P-A-E-X-P-O to save up to 30% and get an additional $10 off with the code APROS. That's A-P-R-O-S. We'll be there and we hope to see you too. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Good. Glad yeah. to hear that. For yeah. a change. For a change. Yeah. 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 So I got a question for you. Okay. Have you ever been someplace that you just couldn't help talking about? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Spout had some examples. Sure. I mean, I I don't know various various theme parks events concerts experiences museums I can imagine I probably uh, said I'm I'm going to tell everybody about this experience yeah but if I could like pinpoint one that like rises above the rest but uh, I'll turn that question over to you and I, I think I know what the answer is kind of right. but what about you <laughs> well absolutely so you know that I went to Ireland recently and I I. Many conversations uh, are had about the trip to Ireland. Uh, it was such an amazing trip. Um, but some of the attractions that we got to visit, quite frankly, I wasn't expecting um, because it was part of a larger tour. And they said, well, these are just stops along the way. So it wasn't something that I had planned to go see. I didn't you know, make a trek to go see a specific um, attraction or, or visitor experience. But one in particular, the Strokestown Park and the National Famine Museum were something that really st- stuck with me. And to the point where when I was there, I handed somebody my business card and I said, I would love to talk to somebody more about this. By the way, I have a podcast and I'd love to be able to broadcast the message uh, of this property because it just really impacted me that much. And today I get to relive a little bit of my trip to Ireland because we get to talk to John O'Driscoll, who's the GM of the Strokestown Park and the, the National Family Museum. Yes. I didn't know you had a podcast, by the way. You never oh, told me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 If if you if you um want to go back in time to like 2017, I'll really tell you about it. <laughs> I so yes, you're right. The uh the conversation that we get to have today, I did not visit the museum because I was not on that trip, but I <laughs> feel like I have now visited the museum because not only does John walk us through the uh, the full visitor experience in great detail. I feel like I learned a lot of history as well about about Irish history, about the national famine, which is something I I don't know about you, but it I didn't learn about in school growing up in 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 the U.S. I think a lot of people probably aren't uh, particularly familiar of it, and and it was it was uh, an extremely significant event in in U.K. history, and 
and particularly in Irish history. Uh, so it was amazing to hear John talk not only about the museum and not only about the history and, and the park and the gardens and, and everything, but uh, but also his career background. His background is in horticulture. So we get to talk about how he came uh, to the museum as, as the head gardener and then was able to move into the general manager position. And so we get to hear about his philosophies of, of growing a team. There's Maybe some horticulture puns built in, but <laughs> thankfully they, you know, they weren't too obvious. But you'll you'll feel it, you know, throughout the, you know, just just a little bit here, uh, as well as just the the entire experience and and the way that uh, that he leads the organization. Well, I'm glad to hear the to say hear you say that you you've learned some things and you you enjoyed the conversation because it really did bring me back to experiencing the Irish heritage and history when I, that I, that I got to do when I was there. Um, now you said that you felt like you've been through the museum, but that doesn't mean that people shouldn't go to the museum. Uh, there's so but much. Now I want to go even more. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There's so much more to, yeah. to see and do uh, not only on the property, but one of the things that I really appreciated about the conversation was how and in the museum, they do this, and throughout the throughout the the tour experience of the of the house, is that it's telling very personal stories about how individuals went through this uh, time in in Irish history, and how you know different classes of people were living at that time, and and you know kind of what they went through, um, and that's what I think really probably drives home those stories is understanding how it affected individual people, not just saying, oh, the potatoes went bad in Ireland. Yeah. And the way that he talks about and and that obviously you can say because you experienced it as a guest is that you're you're introduced to the characters at the beginning and then you you see them throughout as well. And I think that that really helps to to I use the word kind of amplify the content because it, you resonate more with it because you've you're almost building a connection with these people that you're you're introduced to at the beginning and now seeing what they experienced personally uh, it it I think brings more uh, more significance to the way that you are uh, uh, taking away the content from the museum. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that uh, John talks quite a bit about is the fact that they want this experience to be around for a long time, right? So there's a lot of preservation that goes into these facilities because they want it to be ready for future generations to continue to hear these stories. And, you know, you asked a great question about what do we want people to walk away with or what do they want people to walk away with um, after this experience? And, you know, some of the things he talked about were the fact that some of these things, whether it may not be potato related, but suffering is still happening. And if we can learn something from this experience that helps us make things better in the future, then, you know, that's a that's a great kind of takeaway message. And it's, you know, an important thing for, you know, for all history museums. You know, we talked to uh, Jeffrey Nichols from the, the National Civil War Museum uh, not too long ago. And and very similarly, obviously, the, the Civil War, I mean, the Civil War and the famine happened relatively close to each other and, you know, in terms of history. But being able to to take those and say, OK, well, what are what are the parallels of what we're experiencing today and now bring it into the realm of where we focus on is, is the attractions industry is delivering it through a visitor experience that then spurs action once you leave and you have the opportunity to reflect on it and be able to draw those parallels. Absolutely. So is it time to uh, get to this uh, wonderful conversation with John? Let's do it. Hello, John. Welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Matt. I'm doing really well. And thank you very much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. We are delighted to have you and to jump into this conversation. So first of all, can you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. My background is a little bit unusual, how I ended up working here in the role that I have. Um, uh, I'm originally from Cork, which is down south here in Ireland, and I've ended up here in, in County Roscommon as you head to the west of Ireland. Um, my background is uh, I studied horticulture in the National Botanic Gardens in Dublin, uh, with a particular interest in the country estate, walled garden. And um, I got really involved in walled garden and estate restoration, beginning over in County Leitrim, which is literally just across the River Shannon from, from here, from Roscommon. Um, but about 25 years ago, I came over here to Strokestown to the National Famine Museum, Strokestown Park, as head gardener. 
um, on the whole development restoration, the work within the walled gardens and woodlands here. And over time, I got involved in all aspects because I, predict, I think the, the whole estate, it's all linked to the house, to the museum. They're all completely intertwined. And I got involved in all areas of Strokeson Park and took over, got involved in a bit of marketing and stuff, but took over as general manager here, I'd say about... 12 years ago, maybe 13 years ago. And um, I'm here ever since working on many projects, conservation projects, restoration projects, the most recent redevelopment of the museum and visitor center. So took on all aspects of the property. That's so fascinating. With your background in horticulture, can you talk to us about how you were able to, to take that? And I would say, Grow, grow that into your expanded skill set that has led into kind of the, the GM role, because obviously that encompasses, that's all encompassing and, and so much more from, I would say, horticulture is very, a very specific niche and then being able to kind of broaden that out to general manager. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's interesting. It is interesting, Josh. I suppose I kind of I developed into the role slowly, get, getting involved in different aspects of the property here, be it little bit of marketing events, uh, small events in particular, which grew into bigger events. And I do think, I suppose, the horticultural background, it's all about growing and uh, seeing things grow. And you bring teams together. You're working with teams all the time when you're working in an old wall garden or a restoration project. So I developed a good experience of working with people. And I think that led into the whole going into general manager here into that role. It's be, just working with people is a key part of everything working in this attraction. Yeah, and there's a lot of parallels you can probably draw, right? You have to have a strong foundation, so you have to have the right soil, right, to grow things. And, you know, you have to water the plants and you have to feed your team. And, you know, so there's probably a lot of parallels there that you can draw from the horticulture to uh, to leading people. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is when you made that transition and you're you're now leading people, what are you finding are some of the... The biggest challenges or opportunities in in working with a, a diverse group of people that are bringing the uh, the experience to life. Ah, the challenges. I well, I I actually love working with people. It's it's just something I do, and I think I I'm fully aware that a, an attraction like this so depends on the people working here and the people visiting. We know it's people coming here that will keep the place alive and keep it going. Um, it's bringing people together and making sure that people understand that they're a team, that they're part of a team. Like I, I, I kind of, I don't, I, I don't ever use the word, the staff or anything like that. It's always the team. And that, that's exactly what it is. I'm, I may be general manager, but I'm just one of, I'm part of that team without, and I am fully aware that without that team, um, we get nowhere. We get nowhere, everybody. And, and each role is connected to, or depends on the other role all the roles are linked you know everybody helps here i know like just recently we had um, a fairly large event in our walled gardens a family event and everybody everybody got involved be it archivists curators maintenance chefs everybody was involved and this is a team and it was a very successful event because of that hmm. So, John, wonder if we can uh, maybe kind of zoom out a little bit because Matt had the opportunity to uh, visit a couple of months ago. But curious for for those who haven't had the chance to experience it yet, can you walk us through the the property, the park, the museum, and and kind of just the the overall experience that your guests have when they come to visit? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's it's we're almost like three attractions in one that are linked together. When you visit Strokestown Park, the National Famine Museum, there you can visit Strokestown House which is seen by guided tour. And this was the landlord's mansion. And it had it's preserved in time with all of its original contents, the furniture, letters, photographs, children's toys, they're all there. And that's seen by guided tour. Then you can walk across the yards and you go into what were old stable buildings and farm buildings. And you get a completely different story. The story of the great Irish famine and what it was like for those people living outside the estate wall, wall the estate walls and gates in particular during a tragic period in Irish history, the Great Irish Famine. And then, of course, we have our outdoor attraction. We have lovely woodland walks, a six-acre walled garden, which is a Georgian walled garden. It was originally a fruit and vegetable garden, became a pleasure garden in the late 1800s. And that has all been restored and preserved. And then, of course, we have our visitor centre, cafe, gift shop, all the usual facilities, on-site parking. So when, when people visit Strokestown Park, they're getting a whole kind of 
feast of, of history from, from the tragic to the restoration, to the conservation, to the big house. It, it's all here, really, Irish history. Yeah, and like Josh said, I got to visit, and I, I it was fascinating to go through the house. We took the tour. We did the famine uh, museum. Didn't get to see the walled gardens, but um, we're just really impressed by, like you said, it, it's it's a period, uh, like a period piece that it's it's a piece of art, right? The the house specifically, right? And it's it's preserved and and it looks it looks amazing. And to hear the stories of of the people that live there, and you mentioned the the children's toys. That was one of my my favorite rooms, I think, because you see all these different toys. Then you can just imagine the kids playing with them, uh, because so often when you see a a house like that, when it's an older house. And people are telling the stories of the 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 landlords and the people that live there and the business that was conducted and all those type type of things. You don't really think about the children, so I think that it's really cool that 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 uh, that room was there. Was there anything special about that room in particular when it came to you know the the things that you found or the the pieces that you decided to display? Oh yeah, I I, I completely agree with you, Matt. The the children's toy room is just it's 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 amazing. And when you when you go in there with a group of people with a tour, there are a few rooms in the house that that you get, wow, or you get people take a gasp when they go in there and they see. But the toy room recently we've done a reinterpretation, just some conservation work within the collection in there. Our archivist curator has done an amazing job on the presentation. But I, when you looked at some of the toys, I don't know if you noticed. They, they small, small little things that were connecting the children of the big house to the, I suppose, the, the, the hobbies of the big house in the midst of the little train track. I don't know if you saw that there was a train set and in the middle of it, there's a little, they're, they're actually iron, cast iron and lead children's toys. And it's a pack of hounds chasing a fox. And it's really, it's like the kids that young, the children are learning about the fox hunt. You know, it, 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 I think that's really interesting. But then also when you, there was one drawer and when you look into it, it, it just screams children because it's collections, collections of rocks, fossils, seashells, um, chestnuts, things that children still would collect, you know, and they're just all in my, and they were all in the house because as I said, everything that, that's in the house is original to the house. They were there left. And the fact that Strokes on House has its original contents right down to those little things, children's collections of seashells is 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 amazing. John, I have a question about uh, about a word that you've used a few times here so far, and that's attraction. And obviously, this is the Attraction Pros podcast, and we focus on attractions. Uh, but we've had some conversations with with people, whether it's historic sites or heritage sites or cultural venues. And sometimes the word attraction, we hear that that might rub some people the wrong way because it might have the association with being for profit or kind of more associated with theme parks. And I'm wondering if if that's the case, or if the Famine Museum is an attraction, and and how it's seen that way as well. Oh, uh, that that's a that's a really interesting question. I use the word attraction a lot because I we we are a visitor attraction. We're we're attracting visitors. That's that's part of it. It is the national. It is a famine museum. It's telling a tragic story of the Great Irish Famine. And um, what I would use, we are trying to attract visitors because without visitors, where would we be? And the, the commercial side, when you mentioned that, that that's a, so important to us. Um, Strokestown Park and the National Famine Museum is all managed and run by the Irish Heritage Trust, which is a not-for-profit heritage charity. Um, and it's all about saving this property. They have three, two, three other properties, Johnstown Castle over in Wexford, Photo House down in Cork and number 11, Parnell Square in Dublin. And it's all about preserving these properties. We have to be a little bit commercial because the, every single penny that comes in goes back in. So it's incredibly important that we bring in those pennies that they can go back into saving and preserving property because we want we, the, the whole goal here is making sure these properties are there for generations to come. We're, we're we, I, I know I'm, I'm fully aware that we're just the custodians for now. And it will be really, really lovely to see leave it in good shape for the next custodians so they can take the baton on and make sure that Strokestown Park and the National Family Museum continues to do what it does. Well, and John, speaking of the future generations, um, 
I think you guys just went through a, or are going through a redevelopment. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how that is, that is um, progressing and maybe the, the, the difference of, you know, you're trying to preserve something, but also move forward at the same time. Yes, yes, um, we have. It's been a major redevelopment here. Uh, we reopened in July of last year. Um, uh, Strokesdown Park and the National Famine Museum, the, well, Strokesdown House opened to the public in 1987. The National Famine Museum opened to the public in 1994. And then the walled gardens were after that in the woodlands. So there was always a, something opening or developing. There was absolutely nothing wrong with what we had, but... The facilities, the visitor services, the, the facilities had been there since 1994. So they just all needed upgrade. We needed to make sure we had proper facilities for dealing with those visitors that we that, that are coming here. So working, well, we were very, very lucky in securing grant aid and support from Falcha Ireland. And uh, the owners who are Westward Holdings, part match funded that. And we a little bit over 5 million euro project where we, created a whole new visitor centre, giving us the facilities for our visitors. We extended our cafe. We create, redeveloped it, reinterpreted it and put a whole new National Famine Museum in. And we converted the old, beautiful vaulted stables here it, very sensitively into an event centre for small events, concerts, theatre, weddings. You know, we're bearing in mind, we have to think, we have to expand on what we do. The variety of what we do can only help save the property. So it has been a huge project and we're so appreciative to Falch Ireland and to Westward Holdings, the company and the Irish Heritage Trust for all they have done in in what has been achieved here. It, a huge changes. and we're, we're able to accommodate a lot more people. I think somebody told me recently, and I always think it's very funny, here I am going off the tangent, they told me there's three things you have to get right. And that's the brew, the view and the loo. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope we have those right. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, uh, with as part of this redevelopment and thinking, uh, you know, 1994 to today, close to 30 years, uh, in addition to everything that you described, was there was there more technology woven into the experience to appeal to today's digitally native consumer? And can you talk about that while at the same time balancing kind of the, the historic nature of the content? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the museum has changed uh, considerably. It has become far more immersive. You're brought into the exhibits. We have digital screens, audio visuals, um, video screens telling the story of the assassination here of the landlord in the house, which I'll go through the history in a little while because there's, there's a big story to Strokeson Park and the Great Irish Famine. Um, it well, it really it was to try and make the museum more immersive. The, the, the museum is based around the original archive, the documents, the strokes on famine papers, and they've been used since the very beginning of the museum to, to tell the story and to back up the story of the Great Irish Famine. They're still key. It's still the archive, and they are highlighted and presented in a much better way in the museum than they were, but also they've been used digitally. They, there's one star document, and that's being read to you as you go into one room of the museum. And it really tells the story of how, what was happening to people at that time, how they were really at the lowest point in their lives and they were kind of pleading for help. Um, so it it just brings, it's what's been done in the new museum, it's bringing, it's kind of making the information very accessible. It's kind of almost giving you the information rather than you having to find it and read it. It's given to you. And uh, and it has all of the, because a lot of people have said, oh my gosh, there's in, in some museums and in the old museum, there's a lot of reading. And I completely get that. Some people, I know with my own family, we all do our own things. One of my sons will be through a museum in 10 minutes and is in the shop, whereas the rest of us, are, my wife in particular, will be still in room one reading, you know, uh, that, that, that people are different the way they, so it's presenting the information in a way you still have all that information you have to you have to tell the full story you have all that information but present it in a way that the, the person who just wants to read certain amounts of information in a museum that they're catered for but the person who wants to read everything can read everything or can hear everything in the exhibit yeah and john are you able to go maybe into a little bit more detail into the history of the famine and, and kind of how that affected ireland because I think a lot of people, especially now, they hear that and they say, oh, it was the potato famine and, you know, 
potatoes went bad, right? But there's so much more to the story. Can you kind of um, uh, bring that to life for us a little bit? Yes, uh, yeah, I can. I, you know, it, it's it's really amazing that the story of the great. I, I suppose I'll tell you the story of Strokestown and the famine, and that kind of really. Um, because it was a very key part of the history of the Irish famine for what happened in Strokestown. Um, the landlord, Major Dennis Mahan, who owned Strokestown House, he inherited the estate here in 1845. He inherited a debt-ridden estate, beginning of the Great Irish Famine. I think it was about £30,000 in debt, which would be about £5 million in today's money in debt. The beginning of the Great Irish Famine, many rent strikes. What was he going to do? Um well, the first thing that happened for Dennis was was wonderful. His daughter, Grace Catherine, married into the Sanford Packenhams, who were related to the, the Duke of Wellington, Lord Longford. The estate, the lands went up to 30,000 acres, and the name also changed to Packenham Mahan at this point. Wonderful. But the next thing that happened was not so good, and the archive tells that story here. On the advice of an agent, Dennis Mahan began an eviction and an, and an immigration scheme here in Strokesham. Um, at one point in May of 1847, he gathered 1,490 of his tenants, men, women and children, about 295 families. And he gathered them here in Strokesham and he walked them from Strokesham to Dublin along the Royal Canal, which is about 165 kilometres. From Dublin, they were put on ships to Liverpool and from Liverpool to Quebec. By the time they arrived at the quarantine station on the island of Grosseil, just outside of Quebec, more than a third of them had died on the journey. And shortly after this, in November of that year, Major Dennis Mahan was assassinated just outside of his estate, near Foreman, just the outskirts of his estate. He was coming back from Roscommon Town. Uh, he was the first landlord assassinated in Ireland during the Great Irish Famine. His daughter was on her honeymoon on the Isle of Wight when this happened. She never set foot in Strokestown again. No member of the family lived in, in the house. They came and went, but they weren't living here from 1847 up to 1890 when the next member of the family moved back here. But it kind of points out how violent times were getting and how kind of at, 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 almost on the whims of the landlord, the tenants or the people were living, like a decision to just evict and clear people. Uh, there was a famine starting and just because they didn't, they hadn't paid rent, they were being cleared. They were put off the land. When you go into the third room of the museum, you see the classes of housing and there are four classes of housing. Now, you may remember seeing them at the, there's a model of Strokesan House, which is the landlord's house. And then we have the second class, which is the, the middleman who would have rented large plots of land and sublet to many tenants. And then you have the, well, I suppose what you'd almost call it, what you'd have seen in pictures, the Irish cottage, which would be the second class, small, maybe thatched roof, one window, one door, chimney. But then you go down to the fourth class of housing. And basically it was a, a mud hovel a mud hut built out of sods and stones and branch roof, one room, no windows, no chimney. And there was a huge proportion. I think it was nearly nearly 90, prior to the famine, one of our figures is prior to the Great Irish Famine in County Roscommon, nearly 90% of the people were living in either fourth or third class houses. And that's it, like when you think, the, the 90% of the people. And when we look into it a little bit closer, it's believed that a lot more people were living in the fourth class, that mud hovel. Because if, for, for instance, if you were living, if you were living in a mud hovel at this point, and one day you you got up and you decide, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a branch wall here. I'm going to divide this into. I'm going to make do do up, extend, make it a little different. By putting that branch wall immediately, your fourth class house goes up to third class house because it has two rooms. Mm. And when we think like that, that says an awful lot about what was happening at that time and the poverty that was there. People, the people had become dependent on, on potatoes to, for survival. They were living on very small plots of land, rented plots of land. If they were lucky, they, were, they had rented plots of land. These little plots were becoming smaller and smaller as the families grew. If a son got married, a piece of that land was given to him and his wife to set up home. So they were becoming smaller and smaller. You can grow a lot of potatoes 
on a very small piece of ground, enough to feed your family of for almost for the year. And if you had something like buttermilk or something to go with them, you had it was a it was a nutritious enough diet, but it was being dependent on that one crop for survival was the problem. And it was a disaster. Phytophthora infestants, potato blight came in, uh, wiping out the crop for several seasons, leaving people with nothing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate yeah. it. So the, the history lesson, I, I'm, I'm learning a lot just, just listening to you <laughs> and, and now kind of tying that in with everything that your visitors are experiencing uh, when they come visit the museum. With with everything that you just shared with us and then even tying in with the way that you deliver the experience, what what do you want your visitors to take away when they come and they they learn all the content? What do they walk away thinking, doing kind of beyond their their visit at the museum? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I I, I, do, I suppose basically a better understanding of what happened during that period of Irish history. Uh, you know, that it's 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 explained in a lot more detail. As we had said there at the start, people have heard of what they're called the great the potato famine. Uh, you know, but we're not going into a little more depth on what was happening and how people were living. But I we would also like people and um we we're trying to incorporate, we do incorporate temporary exhibitions on what's happening in the world today, be it conflict, um, be it climate change, what's how people are affected and food security and food scarcity. And we want to grow that because I think it's very important that leaving the Famine Museum, when you're thinking about what happened in the mid-1800s in Ireland, maybe start drawing comparisons with what's happening in the world today. Because there are people still going through awful times with food insecurity and in mass immigration. And, you know, bear in mind, you know, when, you, when anyone makes any decision about immigration or immigrants, especially if you're Irish, think about your own story and your own history. And I'd love that people, I would love if people take that or, or think about that. And that's a big part of, I know we've mentioned we have our outdoor facilities, the gardens and the woodlands in particular. I see a lot of people when they've done the museum and read the museum, they go out and they sit, they go to the woods. And maybe have a chat or a think, and I'm I'm hoping they're having the conversations that they that's needed. We have we have a, a comment wall too, and I do see a lot of people putting things up, going it's still going on or it's still happening or, you know, which which I think is, is a great thing, if the museum makes people think about, use history, to maybe consider what's happening today. Well, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, from my perspective, that was one of my takeaways uh, from visiting the Family Museum. But of course, also as someone who works in the attractions industry, I was taking taking note of how the story was being told. And I'm wondering if we can maybe dive into a couple of the things that I remember specifically about the museum um, and maybe how this part of the story came to life. So if I remember correctly, when you first walk in, there are these beams that are coming down from the ceiling with pictures of people on the on the underside of that beam so as you look up you see the the faces of the those those folks um can you kind of describe that as the entry point to the museum yes i can and um, that that's when you when you go into the room one as i said earlier the famine museum is situated in what were the old stable buildings or farm buildings of the big house strokes on house and if you actually looked out the window from that room you see the house you, the mm -hmm. museum the famine museum is sitting in the shadow of the landlord's house. And that's a little, that kind of says something in itself, I think, to me. Maybe I overthink these bullet uh, But all of those, when you go in, you're in, you are actually walking into an old, beautiful Georgian stables. The walls are there. You probably noticed the cast iron, the wrought iron gates. There's pull out to divide the loose boxes. There are a few saddles and things in there. And so you're in where the good hunting horses were kept and you're going into the start of the museum. And um, when you look up, those people looking down on those plinths that are coming down, there are faces looking at, they are the characters of the museum. Some of them are real. You see the landlord, Dennis Mahan. You see his agent, John Ross Mahan, who advised him immigration on an extensive scale, moving people off the land. You see Father McDermott, the, the local parish priest who allegedly denounced the landlord from the pulpit at church at mass the Sunday before he was assassinated. You see secret societies, you see cottier tenants all there looking. You hear more of their story as you go through the museum. So you begin 
with all of the characters looking down at you. There is also an audio in that room um, when you push a button and it's somebody prior to the famine who's travelling through Ireland and writing back to his sister describing what he's seen. And he's seeing the problem, the, the, the dependency on the potato, he's seeing the pressure for land, the unfair division of land. He says things like, uh, paying rent for the land they once owned. Uh, the, all of this is coming back. So when you listen to that and you have these people looking down, it kind of sets the scene before you move on through the museum. And I think the next part, when you go through, there's a little transitional zone with, with horse noises of horses and pictures of people getting out of carriages. That's you arriving at the dining room of Strokes and House, which is the next room, the large dining room. Do you remember? I do. And, and it looks amazing. There's a beautiful... Well, it's an interpretation of a dining room, a chandelier, the fireplace, and at the end of the museum, Dennis Mahan, there's a picture of him toasting the guests, you and the guests. But also when you look, did you notice walking, pacing behind him, the shadow? I don't think I noticed. There's a shadow pacing. When you stand there and you look, he's walking backwards and forwards, reading something. And it's highlighting, okay, God, there's beauty, there's chandeliers, there's wine, there's toasting. But not everything is right. He has inherited a problem. £30,000 in debt, the beginning of the Great Irish Famine, many rent strikes. He had inherited a major problem. Mm. And he, on that dining room table, in the glass case, the documents, that room, there, the archive, there are archival documents. And I think two of them that I think are very important, and they're, they're two I kind of go to immediately, there's a list of persons that get pieces of meat on Christmas morning, 1842, prior to the famine, some charity, some food being given out. And there's a line drawn through somebody's name and dead written after them. They're gone. But sitting next to that, from the Strokesand House kitchens, we have a recipe for lobster soup from the same period. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. Another one of the um, experiences I'd like to maybe touch on is I think it's right after the dining room. And there's a big mural and you can see, I think it's different classes maybe um, as you're going back and back and back. Um, can you kind of describe that a little bit for us? Yes, I can. When you when you come around into that area, a it's kind of, it is the, the classes, the society, and it's talking about society. And when you look at it, I know when you look, it's like a, I think they call it a diorama, but it's a large three-dimensional image with layers. And it's kind of highlighting it, it wasn't simply them and us rich and poor. There were many, many layers of society, beginning with the landlord and his agent, to the middlemen, to the secret societies, to the church, to the cottier tenant, right to the very back of the picture, the landless laborers, who were the ones who really suffered the most. They had nothing. They were tenants of tenants if they were lucky. Mm. John, okay, Josh, one more real quick. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And and I, I want to make sure I'm remembering this correctly, but I think it was toward the end of the experience where there was a, a piece that maybe looked like a ship and you walk under it. Um, was If I'm remembering it correctly, was that to, to symbolize the size of a, an area that people might have been in, like with their entire family, that's, that small cramped area? It is. Yeah, absolutely. That And when you go in, you go into this little space, it kind of hangs down over your head as well. And you can read because they, when Dennis chartered the ships to, to take the tenants that he walked from Strokestown to Dublin, when he chartered, he chartered four ships. And on the inside of that, you can read there's the Naomi, the Aaron's Queen, the John Munn and the Virginius. And it describes the, it, it, how many days at sea. I think the Virginius was 63 days at sea. And I think there was I can't, and how many dead on each ship from Strokes. And it just tells the story of those people. And that space, that actual space, is the amount of space allocated to a family for their passage to America on a coffin ship. Wow. So you mentioned the the characters that guests are introduced to at the beginning. You said some of them, some of them are real, some of them are not, but then you you see more of their story as the as the visit continues. Does that, I would say, amplify how well the content resonates when guests are able to associate it, a face and a name with the historical events that that are happening? Is that a, is that a critical part of delivering the story to the visitor? 
It definitely helps. I think when you're when you're talking about uh, uh, like the story that the, the family museum is talking about real people, the archive is there, the letters are there, the pleas from the tenants, the eviction lists, the eviction notices, they're all there. And I think, yes, when you when you are talking about when you can put a, a name or a face to a story, it's it's very important and it, it really helps. It really brings the museum to life. You know, um, we I had mentioned one of them there, and it was the, the local parish priest. Like he, like that story is a local story here around the area that's that's been told by many. That apparently, allegedly not apparently, allegedly he said to his parishioners on the Sunday morning, "Our local landlord is just like Cromwell, but he's still alive." And two days later, Dennis Mahon was shot. But uh, but the priest denied ever saying that. But like that's there. That that's a, a local story. The priest existed. Dennis Mahon existed. You know. And when people are hearing those stories, it it really helps to set the scene for the Great Irish Famine and set the scene for for telling people more about it. And speaking of telling that story, maybe one other area of the the experience that I, I really enjoyed, you know, you talked about people, you know, that will read a lot of things. And, and then you had these um, uh, monitors where there was um, different people telling the story in period costume and, and things like that. Um, that to me was really, really engaging to sit there and listen to their stories and hear how they sort of interacted. So um, can you maybe talk a little bit about how that interpretation kind of came to life? Because I if I remember right, there it's more in more than just one spot in the museum, right? Where where those same characters are telling a story. But maybe I'm mixing that up. But anyway, if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's it's in the second last room of the okay. museum, and it is it's um four characters. Let me try and remember them now. There's um the Henry Packenham Mahan, who would have been the man who married Dennis's daughter. There is the mother of one of the people who was executed for the murder. There's a narrator, um, Patrick Hasties, who was also one of the accused. And they're telling their story. And it's it, it, again, they're saying their piece and it's going from one to the other to the other and back. And they're, they're describing what happened um, in Ireland. And it, it's a brilliant way because, you know, Henry Pack and a man is talking about his dear mother-in-law and how the family are devastated and um, how they even had to sell some furniture now because they were going to be so stuck for for, for money, you know, that, that they was going to be. But then you've got this other man and this lady and the lady in particular is pleading with her son. She, he has been taken in because people are gathered and taken in and put in prison while they gathered information. There was a major search. This was a major assassination. It was brought up in the Vatican, the killing of Dennis Mahan in Strokestown, the landlord in Ireland. Um, and she's pleading with her son, look, tell them whatever you can, your poor wife, your children. Now they're, they've even stopped the famine relief food or meal that we were getting what are we going to do we're going to starve and then the other man is saying they have no proof i have nothing to do with dennis man i i just lived in the same area i always paid my rent i had nothing to do you know so there's 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 a, it really sets it and then on the wall did you notice on the the, the panel on the wall I, I think I, I I call it CSI Strokestown because we have the images because sitting in that room in front of those screens with the gun, the gun that was used to shoot Dennis Mahan sits in the room in a glass case in front of these monitors or panels that are telling the story. So we have, then you have the, the, the all the strings that are connecting the gun to the house, to the assassinated, to the accused. And there's one man at the start, Andrew Connor, and it's believed that Andrew Connor was the man who did it. Whereas there were three other people hanged in Roscommon, Andrew Connor got away. He got off, he got away. The police followed him as far as Canada and he disappeared down into North America and was never seen of again. Mm. And that's that's all in that room. Go ahead, I'm telling you everything now. But <laughs> people have to come and see it still. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like we're getting a virtual tour of, of yeah, the that's right now. Uh, John, you mentioned earlier briefly, you talked about the Irish Heritage Trust, and I'd love to uh, come back to that if you can share a little bit more about the trust and its role in operating the property. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, it, it's, it's very, I, I'll tell you a little bit about how Strokes on Park came about and how it was saved by West, by one man in particular, and then the trust becoming involved. 
um, strokes on house, a, a local businessman called Jim Callery. He had a garage. This, this is how twists and turns of business in the modern world can lead to some great preservation and conservation too. Uh, Jim, a local businessman, he had a garage premises here just outside of the estate wall. In 1979, he secured the dealership for Scania. Scania trucks, it's a Swedish truck, it's one of the best-selling trucks in Europe today. He got the dealership for all of Ireland for Scania trucks. He didn't have enough room around his garage, so he came up to Olive Packen and Mahan, the last member of the family living here in the house, asking her would she sell a couple of acres of land at the back of his garage. He needed to expand. Scania was coming to Strokestown. It was going to be great for the area for jobs. And Olive said no. It had gone from 30,000 acres in its heyday and was now down to 300 acres and she did not want to see it get any smaller. Shortly after this, Jim was notified that the family were putting the whole lot, house and lands up for auction in London. He flew to London, secured a loan, I think, and bought the lot, house and 300 acres of land. Being a businessman, Jim says, he had still says it today, he had no plans for this place. He was going to sell off the land to recoup his costs take the land he needed to extend his garage and concentrate on this new Scania truck deal. But he made an arrangement that Olive could live on in the house. One weekend, she was going to London and he said, do you mind if I go in and have a look through the place? And she said, well, you own it. And on that weekend, going through Strokestown House, Jim came across two rooms at the back, filled from floor to ceiling with boxes. There was rain flowing through them. The roof was caving in in parts of the house. He realised this was the estate archive. He couldn't but have a look. And when he did, he realised a lot of these documents dated to the period of the Great Irish Famine. Immediately, he knew, who knew how important this collection was. But one piece of paper that he picked up on that day, it's our star document in the Famine Museum. We call it the Clunahee Petition. The tenants of a small area, a townland, not far from here, were writing to the landlord asking for help for famine relief work. They say things like, we cannot withstand the cries of our families at night from hunger. They also say, we are not for turning against the laws of God or, land, or the land unless pressed to by hunger. It's like threat in the letter. Jim Callery grew up in this townland of Cluny. He, he still lives out in that area today. This was his own history. The family names, the signatures he recognised. He went back to his managers and said, we have to preserve what we've got there. And he set in motion one of the largest privately funded restorations Ireland has seen today. He went to the family, he bought the entire contents, he kept the archive and he set the ball rolling. And then he did an amazing record. It's, it's just unheard of what Jim Callery did. He's a, a real heritage hero here. Um, in 2015, the Irish Heritage Trust then came on site. As I said, not-for-profit Irish Heritage Charity. They came on board with support from Westford, with support for the running of Strokestown Park and have taken on the running of Strokestown Park. They Everything from the day-to-day -day operations, events, um, the, the massive redevelopment that we've just had, they led on that, all of the applications, chasing funding, all of those things, they are key. Because I said, it, it, with, with the Tr Irish Heritage Trust, they have three other properties, Johnstown Castle and Wexford, Photo House in Cork, 11 Parnell Square in Dublin. And it's people place partic participation. It's all about bringing people in, getting them involved and making sure that the properties are there for generations generations to come and making them more and more accessible to more people and highlighting the importance of the properties for for the Irish people. Absolutely. And I, it was such a, a wonderful experience when I was there. So I, I appreciate all the work that you've done and the Irish Heritage Trust has done certainly to to preserve such a, a wonderful um, attraction uh, for, for so many to enjoy. Um, John, I'm, I'm curious. I just got to go to Ireland uh, a couple of months ago and absolutely loved it. Uh, again, got to visit your facility. If someone is thinking about coming to Ireland, I'm just curious. Of course, they're going to go to the Family Museum in Strokestown Park. But in addition to that, what would you recommend for people to see and do when they're in Ireland? Oh, gosh, that's that's difficult to do everything. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Do um, I, oh, I, I, I'm, gosh, let me think. Uh, there is so much to do. And um, I suppose I'm going to do, turn it around. I'm, 
I'm what they call a blow-in in this area. Even though I, I've been in, I've been living up here over 30 years. I'm still the fella from Cork. Um, but when I moved up to this area, to County Leitrim, County Roscommon, which is what, what is called Ireland's Hidden Heartlands today, this whole region, Ireland's Hidden Heartlands, I fell in love with the area. I think it's just unspoiled Ireland. Uh, the, the the outdoor attractions, the fabulous River Shannon. There's just so much to see in this area. And it's, it's really moved slowly and it's peaceful. But two places in Ireland's hidden heartlands, apart from Strokes in the Park and the Famine Museum, uh, that I I really, really recommend. And it's Rackrohan Visitor Centre, which is only 15 minutes over the road from here. I go there as often as I can. And it is... Um, it's an, it was the ancient capital of Connacht, the high kings of Connacht. There's a wonderful visitor centre telling the story. There are over 250, I think, archaeological sites. You can get out and visit the sites. And there's one, one. I, I won't go down this. I won't. It's a little, it's a cave, but I just think I'm, I'm no way. But loads of people go down and they come back and tell me. I bring people and I say, go down, tell me. Um, It's only in the gut, the cave of the cats. And it's supposed to be the doorway into another world, into the other world. You crawl for a certain amount of space down through these rocks and then you can stand up. They tell me you can stand up inside, but but, but I think Rackrohan Visitor Centre. And then the other thing, uh, and it, it just, it tells such an amazing story, the Arigna mining experience. Uh, in particular now at the moment, when you visit Arigna mines, it's the coal mining. It's not a coal mine anymore. It's a visitor attra- attraction. You get uh, taken down into the mine by the old, the retired miners. And they are telling that story. I, I was brought down by, I think his name was Peter, many years ago, who was a miner. And he was describing it to me uh, and how they did. And they were lying on their sides, cutting seams of coal out. And I was thinking, you know, you kind of innocently think, God, yeah, I wonder how long ago that was. And I think when he said to me, that was about 10 years ago. And I'm thinking, what? I think that he was doing, the, the mine was that op- operation of him fairly recently. And that story of coal mining and the work, it kind of would make you respect coal in a big way so they're just two very very different attractions and they're all in this area in the in Ireland City and Ireland and they're two that I'd add into any agenda coming to Ireland. Excellent thank you so much John this has been such a fascinating conversation we really appreciate your time today as we start to wind this down here if people want to learn more about the National Famine Museum in Strokestown Park or if they want to get a hold of you directly where would you send them? Oh, yep. Yeah. If you want to, there's there's a couple, several ways, I suppose, really. If you visit strokesonpark.ie, our website, you can e- email info at strokesonpark. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on all those sites. And then there's also the nationalfamineway.ie website. Uh, the National Famine Way is a new development as well that's happened over the last couple of years. It's a national cycling walking trail from Strokestown to Dublin, walking or cycling in the footsteps of the Strokestown tenants, following exactly the route they take. And if anyone wants to find out more about that, because that ends here or starts here, you can come either direction. There is the National Famine Way site, nationalfamineway.ie site, where people can become registered walkers. They get emailed uh, a walker's passport, which they get stamped the whole way along the route. And it is incredibly um it's a kind of an emotional walk. I've done parts of it. I've never done that. I've driven the whole thing as a support driver with people, but I've walked parts of it. It's marked with little bronze shoes and the stories of each area and the famine. And you're kind of seeing what those people from Strokesland could possibly have seen as they were heading for those ships that would eventually take them to Quebec. But strokeslandpark.ie or nationalfamineway.ie. Uh, that is fascinating, John. I think next time I come to Ireland, I'm going to have to do that uh, do that trail. So um, thank, thank you very much for your time today. This was um, not only fascinating from a, an attraction standpoint, but I got to kind of relive my my trip to Ireland. So Brilliant. I really appreciate that, uh, John. So thank you so much for your time. And for everybody who's out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release, and even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.